Well, folks, it certainly was a privilege to do a dedication episode to the great Ennio Morricone. And it was wonderful to hear Ken regale us with both his memories and so much attention to detail with his legacy and life. So so we thought we'd return to the original format we put together previously, which was just quite simple. Talk about a movie leisurely and take apart some things, reference the source material if it is an adaptation, or just find certain things that we like to talk about. So in a way we go. Here's part one. Part two will probably come out a couple episodes later. We thought we'd just in between do something a little more topical. And perhaps if something comes up from one of our listeners that they would like, whether it's a movie that perhaps has a theme that's related to what's going on in the world right now, or something else that they just have in mind that perhaps even correlates to what we discussed before. So off we go, folks. Thanks for joining for the ride. And let's start. And away we go. Ken, you're back so soon, working man. It's nice to be with you again virtually. And we took this midweek, or we recorded a midweek session uh, to honor the great maestro, Ennio Morricone, and and uh, thought we'd just jump right back into the meat and potatoes with movies and a few segments here and there. But we're going to go light on the segments because... We want movies that you love and that we love, and we want to just leisurely talk about them. So, okay, I, what I want to do is I want to start off with a little bit. I don't know the title of this segment anyway, but I'm just going to say corrections corner or correction section or something like that. But in the in the Ennio Morricone tribute, I mentioned that the Once Upon Time in America soundtrack has 23 tracks. It, in fact, does not. It has 15. However... Once Upon a Time in the West has 27, and I most likely confuse the two. Yes, and I've been listening to uh, Once Upon a Time in the West soundtrack and the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly soundtracks. So I haven't been able to get to Once Upon a Time in America or Milena or anything else yet. I was listening to Milena tonight and Once Upon a Time in America just for uh, taking notes and a little bit of research. Always puts me in a good mood. On Friday, I had a sweet weightlifting session to Ecstasy of Gold, which is the standoff scene from Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Just feeling your ear holes. For sure. Okay. Well, you know, I um, for this episode, I want to do kind of an impersonation segment sandwich. And I'd like to start off with something before we jump into talking about Apocalypse Now, which will be the final cut, which was released last late last year. And I, I'm excited because the cut before that was Redux in 2003, I believe. Didn't see that. Glad this came around. The timing couldn't be better. Saw it oh. a couple of weeks ago or last week, actually. Okay. And actually, I, I finished the movie and then I watched the last 30 minutes again as it's highly hallucinatory. And there's some juxtapositions there. To discuss later on but let's just jump into the recording the impersonations i have for you ken i don't this is know my favorite section of this podcast don't have a title yet but i want to jump into it and what i'm going to have you do is just guess we're not going to do a point system but i'll figure out some bonus for you i mean you get the yay or nay the bell or the 
for getting it wrong or right, but a bonus if you guess what movie it came from. And how many do you have prepared? Three. Okay, sweet. And it's only fair to mention to our listeners that I I pre-recorded these, so I thought, well, here I am trying to keep my body completely stationary, not to make any noise and do an impersonation, but I have to be very broad with my gestures. It helps in doing the doing the impersonations. This is your method acting. Yes. Okay. I don't think it's my A game, but I kind of custom made this for you, given the content that we have covered in the past couple episodes. So uh, here we go. Ken, here we go. Here's number one. Are you ready? Let's make sure it's not going to blast your ear hole. Too constrictive. I can't even hold my arms. Circa 1994 is the only hint I'll give you. Um, I, I want to say John Malkovich in Rounders. Wow, you have the six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing going because you're you're on that pathway. <laughs> Thanks for like, bleeping. Thanks for editing out my mistake in that last week. Mike, yes, the, the, the emphasis on bacon. <laughs> okay, listen to it again. Too constrictive. I can't even hold my arms. 94. Do, 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 do. Mikhail Gorbachev. But you're on the... Wow, is my yeah. accent Russian? It's Hungarian, by the way. Oh. <laughs> uh, I was thinking the guy from Rocky Four. The reason you're close is because the time, the movie you mentioned, Rounders, has the actor in it who is doing that line. Has the actor in it. It's not John Turturro. Same generation as John Malkovich. Malkovich. Ah, God. Oh, is he, is he like the bodyguard or the, the bouncer? Nope. Okay, I'll give it to you. There was a gangster. Much right. older, much, much, in the, much older. In the, in the spa. Okay, here's what I'll do. I'll give you the actor. Now you got to tell me the movie. To still get it right. The actor is... My fake drum roll. Martin Lando. Martin Lando. And the answer is... Ed Wood, 1994. He played Bela Lugosi. I was trying not to do... <laughs> I was trying not to overly do it, but that scene, I can do the constrictive. Well, the vampire accent's pretty easy to do, thanks to the one and only Bela Lugosi. Okay, I'm going to jump right to the next one. And this is right down your alley, so needless to say, Ken, I'll be a little disappointed. Well, you had good cause to, if I may say so, your excellency. Brilliant. Dagger thrust. Difficult angle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Kubrick movie. You'll be very disappointed in me. Okay, here we go again. Well, you had good cause to, if I may say so, your excellency. Brilliant. Dagger thrust. Difficult angle. Who is the most kiss-assy? Who is the most, yeah, direct from the movie? 
direct from the movie and the most kiss-assy character, if not, well, one of the most, but if not the most kiss-assy character in a Kubrick movie. Oh, and I should give at least two hints. So here's another one. He won an Academy Award for his performance. Ah, Peter Rusinoff and Spartacus. Yes. And that's either Gosh. a testament to my, my impersonation skills or to the fact that I just couldn't quite nail it right. I was I trying to place it in Barry Lyndon, but I knew it wasn't. And I was going back in time until got to Spartacus. But the Academy Award thing, yeah, gave it away. And I thought if I did it word for word, you'd remember that moment where he was negotiating with Laurence Olivier's character. Okay, on to my last one. And uh, not my finest moment, but... Um, that was good. A little, Not easy. Not a softball, but doable. Okay, last one. Completely outside of Ken's realm, at least outside of the Kubrick universe. Here we go. Touching, cowboy. Touching. Or should oh. I call you Mr. McLean? <sighs> Sounds like a James Bond 007 villain. Meanwhile, the listeners are screaming, Don't you get the line? The line is so obvious. Action-packed adventure filmed in L.A., late 80s. They blew up a building. Late 80s. They blew up a building. The, the character's name is mentioned in the line. Okay, Gosh. one more time. Gosh, I need to practice my impersonations. They suck, Ken. They just Maybe it's just a movie I haven't I'm, seen. I'm not doing it justice. Okay, again. Touching, cowboy. Touching. Or should I call you Mr. McLean? Yeah, sorry, I'm not getting the reference. Mr. McLean, Mr. Officer John McLean of the New York Police Department. Uh, was that Robocop? Die Hard! Yeah, I mean, I was going to say Die Hard. You know what? I've never actually seen it. Oh, my. Oh, my. That is your biggest chasm, Ken. Classic, just action shoot em up. Saw it twice in the theater. You're going to have to add that to your. Queue. How big is your watch list on Letterboxd? Not as big as my IMDb watch list. I went through it yesterday and I came up with 362 movies. Oh, nice. So, no. I could watch a movie a day for a year. No, I wish there was a way to export your list from IMDb, but I guess I just have to manually do it. Hmm. Okay, well, folks, I need to hone my skills, so I'm, I'm not doing these actors, these uh, these legendary people justice with my impersonations, or Ken just needs to catch up on his mud holes, Mike's mud holes, Ken's chasms. Okay, well, shall we just jump right into it? Yeah, let's do that. I, I'd like to, to hearken back to the short story that was the, the inspiration for the script written by John Melios, um, short story, Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, mm. if that's okay. Absolutely. So a little background on Conrad. I, I, I spoke to my Polish friend about how to pronounce this, so please excuse my pronunciation. And I'm reading out of the um, A. Michael Matin compilation of Conrad's short stories from Bards and Noble Classics. And he's a professor of Eng in the English, English department of Warren Wilson College in Asheville, North Carolina. 
Joseph uh, Theodor Conrad Korzeniewski was published under the anglicized pseudonym Joseph Conrad, was born December 1857 in southeastern Russian-occupied Poland. Um, he moved to England in 1896 and had been commissioned on for a, for a company that was in the ivory trade. So he was he was on the Congo River, and what he saw and might have done uh, gave him pause. And I feel like this this short story is a little bit of his confession about what he had seen. Mm. Confession slash hallucinatory report based on combination of speculation and firsthand report. Um, Under the influence is essentially what I'm asking. Well, it doesn't say. But I, there are there are there are pangs of guilt if you look if you read the short story. Okay. So, and it and it all I, I mention all this because it harkens to the movie. Milios did a, an amazing job mm-hmm. of adapting this novel. It had been tried before. Did you know? Were you aware that Orson Welles or Orson Welles tried to make a radio special? Right. Yep. And it didn't it didn't pan out. Didn't work. So it had been, it had been tried before. This is the first successful adaptation of. This this novel novella, and that was in 1939. He presented Arkeo with a what was it like 170 something page script, and then the studio turned it down, and then uh, they felt it was too expensive, and then they asked Wells for a more conventional script, uh, and then guess what he did in return? Citizen Kane. Exactly, and look where that's at. That yeah, that, that worked out. But Apocalypse Now regularly has appeared in the top ten of movies all time, according to director polls. It currently sits at uh, position number six in the sight and sound poll by directors from uh, 2010, I believe. There, there'll be a new new poll in 2020, so I, I, I'm interested to see how that pans out. And is that updated every year? So does... Ten years. Every ten years, unlike AFI, which is, I believe, every year. So things kind of get bumped up or down. Yeah, so you get the filtered version. Directors come and go. But I believe uh, Kane has been in the top five. Top three right now, I believe. Mm-hmm. Tied uh, for third place with uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Well, well, good mention, Ken. So like I mentioned before, this is the final cut, three hours and one minute. And I we, we discussed in a previous episode about length. And there is plenty of reason to show the uncut, if you will, or in the version that Coppola intended for viewers to see because of the hallucinatory sort of surreal images before you and juxtapositions. And without the music that we'll get into a little bit later by the doors, combined with the cinematography and the lighting, there wouldn't be that result. Vittorio Serrar, how do I pronounce his last name? The cinematographer. Yeah, I didn't want to muck that up. And, and, I was surprised to see that this, it was scored by Coppola himself. And Coppola and his, his brother or brother-in-law, his brother, scored it. I didn't know that, Ken. Wow. The entire score? It's, it's, he's credited, except for the Doors, you know, usage. Right. And we talked about uh, Morricone's use of the heartbeat in The Thing, which came out in 1980. This was 79, and they did a heartbeat thing as well and there's a passage from the novel where it actually talks about heartbeats so so much from the novella has made it into this movie um 
The Shining came out in 1980 and Wendy Carlos did the exact same thing. So I don't know if it, it was just the same ideas coming together or if these guys kind of uh, played off one on each other. Ah. There's three movies that came out within a year of each other using heartbeats in the score to, to, to show kind of a omniscient presence. Sure. Sort of this impending doom. Unseen character. Sure. Interesting. Okay, well, before jumping into the meat and potatoes, I just thought, well, here's some food for thought uh, with some with an essence of napalm, Ken. You can, and the folks listening, to think about whether the the calamities of the production themselves contribute to the success of the film, unlike, you know, say, Heaven's Gate, and arguably much like the production of The Godfather. Did you see the documentary, Heart of Darkness, that yes. was, was put together from... Uh, footage that his wife had had captured during the production from Eleanor Coppola she in fact shot things that he was unaware of and when the DVD release upon the release he was not happy with the result how it portrayed him yeah yep. he did make a cameo too cameo appearance I mean it was so telling and uh, you know perhaps people would who are watching them? Well, this is showcasing the failure, but the movie is not a failure. It's it's a it's a, a movie that will be continue to be watched 50, 60 years from now in film schools. And I think her intention was to document the combination of joy that he's experienced as a director in getting this passion project out, but also the the um, the downfalls that he had. The issue. It's so interesting that he's there's actually a candid conversation with him where he's he's lamenting. He's like, I'm making a terrible movie. This is gonna just suck so bad. And Brando came on and he was getting a million dollars a day and he was overweight and Martin Sheen had a heart attack and the Philippine army who was borrowing they were borrowing the helicopters and pilots from would would frequently fly off without notice to go fight insurgents on another island. Right. Which was amazing. But I feel like this cut, you know, the first one was the theatrical and edited. Uh, Redux was uh, the kitchen sink. And, but this one that came out in 2019, the final cut, I believe, is the best. It has the things that are needed to uh, move the plot along and also tie back to the novel. And it, does, it doesn't have things that are superfluous. Sure. Completely agree, my man. Well, let let me, if I can, set up uh, the the background of the novel, and then we can get into the movie. That's okay. Sure, but before you do that, I just want to mention just you mentioned about Brando, and I want to just make a quick connection to the Hearts of Darkness with Brando because apparently, well, there's a couple of issues. Brando thought that Coppola still owed him money, and two, it reflected Brando's uh, not non involvement in Hearts of Darkness was reflected into a movie called Listen to Me, Marlon that was made, which is recordings of Marlon Brando. Just just recording himself, just lamenting and, uh, you know, just monologuing. And there are moments when he reflects on his failures and one of them being how he behaved on the set of Apocalypse Now. I was watching, as I was watching this cut, I tried to, I thought in my mind about a million dollars, million dollars a day. And it was like, okay, this is probably, this scene was probably one day. 
there's two days. Okay, I've seen three days worth of production here. You know, <laughs> and didn't didn't uh, didn't Coppola back this movie himself? He like put up his own money. He did. Private Seven or eight million. Mm -hmm. Seven or eight million. And this this really was on the precipice. Like he would have been ruined if this movie was a failure. It just he was all in. Right. And you know you can't help but think that just after making The Godfather one and two that mm -hmm. he wanted to he was tempted to i should say to make a big budget movie a war film you know with action and adventure and very epic just to sell out momentarily so he can subsequently make his passion projects now that he would have more money it's interesting that the two points to that i don't actually consider it a war movie i mean think i'm nuts but i'll get to that later um a second, uh, I watched um, The Outsiders on a plane trip six months ago. And I remember it seeing it the first time, and everyone in who's been through middle school has read The Outsiders novel. And it was a solidly mediocre movie. It wasn't that it was Ralph Macchio, but it had kind of an all-star cast, Patrick Swayze, uh, blossoming Tom Cruise. It was just solidly mediocre. And I thought, I was like, I was, I was expecting something, oh, you know, Apocalypse Now level, and it wasn't. And do you think that's because, look, I like Apocalypse just took so much out of him, he was like, I just want to make a fun movie that's easy and doesn't almost tear my soul apart. Sort of like a side, sort of my vacation movie like uh, Robert Zemeckis yeah. does quite often. Yeah, mm -hmm. but, you know, same could be said with Scorsese and Raging Bull afterwards. He continued sure. to... Aside from Kings of Comedy, he continued to make groundbreaking movies. And I, I, I set the bar unreasonably high sure. by showing after uh, Doctor Strangelove and after Kubrick continued to set the bar higher and higher and make greater and greater movies. Therefore making the four or five year hiatus in between justified. He made the movies he wanted to make when he wanted to make them. Not all directors have that such a luxury. So with all that mentioned, Ken, is this movie itself absurdist or commentary on the absurdity of war? I'll let you think about that. You can answer it now or you can answer it later. I'm, I'm biased at this point because I, I read the source material uh, just this week in preparation for this. And so in my mind, I see all the connections and tiebacks in the script to The Heart of Darkness. Mm. And like you mentioned, John Milius is... Uh, dialogue you know coppola also said in the i was watching he the uh coppola at the tribeca film festival in april of last year and he mentioned when people come up to him and said that line was so great he immediately gives credit to john milius which says, line was that well you know the smell of napalm in the morning mostly comes to him but that's his immediate response is the credit to john milius for making that memorable dialogue his name was by the way kill gore <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was going to be something more obvious, even more obvious than that. I think it was like uh, blood something, but it, but Kilgore to me is pretty overt. That's a commentary on the insanity of war, right? But more so, the the internal conflict that human beings have to overcome inside of all of us. The general at the beginning says. Uh, there's a conflict between good and evil in every human heart, and good does not always triumph. He alludes to um, <clears throat> what Lincoln said, the better angels of our nature. Mm. 
And I believe that was specifically put in because Lincoln can infer slaves, which can infer, you know, the colonization and imperialism on the African continent, which is what the, the novel is all about. So they oh. were trying to adapt this novel, The Heart of Darkness, to a movie. And they set it in uh, a war context. They, they, they transposed it in time and place, but the themes are all there. And so the insanity is, look, you, and Brando says this, Brando admits this in, in, a, in a speech to Martin Sheen near the end where they had gone into a village to inoculate the children for polio and they came back and they saw that the, the NVA had, had um, hacked off the arms of all the children and left them in a little pile. Hmm. And he was first disgusted. And then he realized this is brilliant. This is genius. If you have people that, are, that can be humans and family men yet do this kind of horrible act, you're going to win the war. And that's the part of war that you have to overcome. You have to accept the heart of darkness that's inside of everyone. The, the historical savage nature of humanity. Sure. If you're going to win the war and the people that don't go crazy and the heart of darkness devours them and destroys them. Okay. All the people on the boat who died did not accept the heart of darkness. The two who did Lance uh, Captain Willard accepted the heart of darkness and they survived. And so the same is with Kilgore. You show this insanity. He says, you know what? Someday this war's going to end. And he says this nostalgically. Like, what am I going to do after this? This is the best time of my life. And so that's just the insanity of war. And he will never get killed. Bombs are going off all around him. And he stands there unflinching. Right. And everyone else is diving in a hole. Incoming! And we're, we're talking about practical effects, Ken. He didn't even flinch. You can imagine like how many takes or did was what was he just the pro to do it on the first or second take, you know, with using expensive. I don't know. But it was it was it's great. It's really yep. great. And then with the whole surfing thing, again with the insanity. Sure. And they steal the surfboard and he spends all this time searching for it in the air and broadcasting. My goodness. What a great character. Unforgettable. Like unforgettable characters in cinema history. Yeah, and I regret not having seen it in the theater. However, there are some revival houses. I mean, it doesn't even have to... I'm sure it won't take too long to come to West Hollywood again for a showcase or an anniversary release, but uh, it has been 40 years. So hopefully I don't have to wait to the 50th to see it on the big screen. I do recommend that listeners go and read the source material. Um, I've been trying to do this for all the Kubrick movies that I can get my hands on the source material. But it really, this is the second time I've read it. The first time I didn't get it at all. The second time it clicked for me. Now, what do you, how so clicking for you? And, and how many years in between? Two years. Okay. I don't know. I just got the illusions. I could see, oh, this is where you pick this part of that script out. Um, it's, it's considered a very, you know, the most broadly influential work in the history of British literature. I mean, there's so many attributes rich symbolism, intricate plotting, prose, uh, psychological insights, the moral significance, and a bit of metaphysical suggestiveness definitely have made it uh, so popular. Uh, let me just read a little segment out, out of what Conrad had to say about this whole thing. I'm, I'm quoting from um, A. Michael Matin's little introduction to the, the short stories. 
Yet while the text is widely recognized as an indictment of the greed and ruthlessness that generally drove European imperialism in Africa, most readers are unfamiliar with the fact that the setting is the event in imperial history so uniquely horrific in its sheer scale and suf of suffering and death that it has been termed the African Holocaust. As Conrad himself would characterize the situation in the Congo nearly a quarter of a century after his novella published, it was the vilest scramble for loot that ever disfigured the history of human conscience. Mm. Wow. So with that backdrop, Apocalypse Now. And, and the quality of those words and that summary, you know, about what is essentially at the core of this film. And when you see all the images and the fiery reds and yellows and the dark shadows, mm, yeah, and, yeah. and you see right. everything just kind of in a, like almost like this swirly hallucinogenic haze, you're, you can't help but think this, this is something that is, in, that is clearly inspired by someone who was doing drugs. Drug use is definitely featured. The soldiers do marijuana and they also do hallucinogens like LSD. But this ties back to uh, one of the scenes that made it to the final cut, the French plantation. And you may say, this is totally outside the where the story is going. This is just, why is this, why is this scene even in the movie? But mm. it's totally relevant because... One, it, it lets the French tell the Americans, like, why, you know, why are you in this feudal quagmire? Look, why don't you learn from our mistakes? You know, we totally screwed up. But these guys are living in almost a time capsule. They had been there for 70 years. So that 68, that puts it about the time, 70 years, it puts it at about the time of Conrad's writing of the novel. Mm. And they're in this time capsule and they're trying to maintain their plantation and their French food. And they've got a Vietnamese chef who doesn't even speak. Uh, speak French, but also the the widower uh, seduces Martin Sheen, and I really I think that's supposed to represent the final uh, seduction of Martin Sheen into accepting the heart of darkness. So she tells him, you know, she screws him, but then she tells him there are two of you, one that kills and one that loves. So it's he's she's allowing him to take over, his, let his dark side, quote unquote, take over when it needs to, and admit that there are. There's this duality of human nature. Uh, Kubrick covered it in Full Metal Jacket, mm. where Martin, uh, Matthew Modine has the little uh, speech with, with the general. and says, why do you have a peace pin and then born to kill on your helmet? Well, I think I'm trying to talk about the duality of man, sir. There's a lot. So that theme is, was covered as well. Uh, but if you look at what, is she, what do they do on the bed? They're smoking opium. Who smokes opium in 1968? They, they don't. They do pot and they do LSD. Sure. So that harkens back to uh, the Opium Wars and Britain's imperialism over Asia, which takes us back to this, which which leads a string right to this this conflict in Vietnam. Do, do you feel that these themes are bubbling underneath the surface, or pretty? Yeah, for sure. I think I think Milios knew what he was doing. Because to me, I I don't see that just right there on the surface. I I feel that as a viewer, I'm watching this movie and I'm seeing the images before me and the, you know, the duality, as you mentioned, and the, the, um, the personalities that are kind of pulled apart, you know, one's, one's anti-war and one's perhaps, you know, the, the, the demons within or deep within. And in Martin Sheen's character, you feel that right away, thanks to how this film is shot with the production itself and the, staff who did such a great job but 
I never felt that it was very obvious and that it was spoon feeding me. It was spoon feeding me these images to make me feel or uh, have a certain viewpoint about the commentary of the war or anti-war or any kind of social context. I mean, that, that's part of it, for sure. The thing I love about this movie is there's that interpretation, but there's other interpretations that equally that are equally well. Mm. So they're both correct that the, there's the conflict within humans and the tie back to the novel, but also it's the fact that it's so anti-war. I feel like the war is secondary though. It's just a, it's just a means to tell this story. It's not about, it's not platoon. It's not full metal jacket. It's not about war. It's just a story within a war. And, you know, even more irony that enriches that is, you know, the apparent victory in the helicopter battle, you know, would be followed by the eventual defeat in the war. In the original Wagner opera, the Valkyries arrive at a point of apparent victory, which later results in defeat. So, oh, yeah, it's just cool. they, they insert these these ironic elements in it to put a spotlight on the absurdity of war. For sure. Oh, by the way, slightly off topic, but did you know Steve McQueen and Brando knew Coppola was self-financing and still insisted with their requested salaries? It's kind of mind-blowing. I, the, sec, the last time I watched it, not this time, I had noticed that there was credited to Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah, uh, and I only knew that back in my video store days because my brother pointed it out to me. He was 14 at the time. Right. He was playing a 17, he's a big boy, so he was playing a 17-year-old. He was 14. Then he has a very emotional moment, you know. He lied about his age, by the way. Don't they all? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Because he's a big man. And so he could, you know, he probably matured very early. Uh, it's interesting dynamic between him and the riverboat captain. He, he's like an uncle to him. He treats him as his nephew. He treats him specially. You know, when him and the, the mechanic are fighting, uh, he yells at, he yells at, uh, uh, they called him Chef. Yeah, he yells at Chef. He says, keep your, keep your trap shut. Stop hmm. picking on him. Right. So I got a question about Kurtz, if you don't mind me uh, kind of shifting a little bit, Ken. Now, in the movie, the main character, played by Martin Sheen, is sent to kill Kurtz. In the source novel, the main character is sent to rescue him. Why such a gigantic change? I think it makes sense in the context of a movie that's taking place in the war. But there are, there are there are a lot of parallels. If you look at the general in uh, when he goes to meet you know, Harrison Ford and the other two guys, and the general says you know, he's out there without any restraint or human decency. What, what and what Martin Sheen finds out by reading the dossier is Kurtz was winning it, and he was winning it his way, and that pissed off the generals. He wanted to be in the Airborne, which means it. A change of rank and he, he would never get higher than what colonel he would never become a general hmm. he gave up uh the political position for himself for the altruistic thing and that scared people so and this is in the novel too that colonel kurtz was an ivory trader he was the best he brought in more ivory than all the others combined or as much ivory as all the others combined and there's jealousy you see it of the, all the other the other managers are jealous of him and they, they make disparaging comments. They, they, they pull up and they see this huge pile of ivory that he's collected and they go, Oh, it's probably fossil. 
You know, they just, they're jealous. And so upstaging your bosses in general is, <laughs> is a bad idea in business. You know, they're, you're, they're going to be jealous and they're going to start poking at you. Oh, sure. So I think that's what happened here. Yeah. So, you know, I was going to mention how the mysterious aura that kind of looms over while Martin Sheen's character recalls Colonel Kurtz's highly decorated past. It's like that signal of impending sort of doom or of something that's just completely reprehensible. In the novel, Kurtz says very few words, yet everyone speaks so highly of him. So you don't meet or judge him. You just see him when he dies. And, and everyone else's impression of him is all that you give. He doesn't speak very much. And, and same in the, in, the, in the book. I'm sorry, same in the movie. You see him at the end, he says a little bit, and then he dies. So it's more the, the cult of his personality. It's not, you know, for you to judge what he did, it's how others see him. Uh, so does that mean his asking salary equates to about a couple hundred thousand per word? <laughs> a man of few words? Oh, just pay me about four million. That's all I want. Four million. <laughs> you gotta give it to me. Even though I made how much? I made two million on Superman. You can do it. No, I mean, I only mention that because you combine just the a troubled production to begin with, you know, sad to say, but Coppola still saw it through and made sure that what was happening, all this symbolism was was correctly, according to how he wanted to, was correctly presented so that we can have a, a variety of interpretations. Yeah, for sure. Like you mentioned, just the imagery, I hadn't thought about that, but now that you mentioned it, yes, the imagery, the spinning fan on the ceiling, uh, like into the helicopters. Uh, Martin Sheen wakes up, and here's the guilt factor that was in the novel as well. He says, I wanted a mission, and for my sins, they gave me one. We don't know what his sins are. We don't give any of his backstory. When the MPs show up, not MPs, but the uh, the guys from the base show up with orders to take him to the airfield. He says, Sir, we have orders to escort you to the airfield. He says, what, what are the charges? Sir, what did I do? No charges, sir. We're just we're just escorting you. We, we have orders to take you. So immediately he's like, I don't know what he did. He had killed several people. He had worked by himself. Maybe he had, he had uh, murdered some people. Maybe he was a spy. But uh, his conscience was ragging on him. And the, the scene in the beginning where, you know, he gets himself drunk on Martel. And by the way, he, he replaces his canteen contents with Martel throughout the film. But, you know, he punches the mirror and he gets his hand bloody and he's, he's crying. That was real. Right. Like he really got drunk. And um, Coppola really egged him on. And he was going through some, some emotional thing. I don't know. It was a drunk moment of, of clarity or, or guilt. And he literally cried. He wasn't faking it. That was real emotion. I believe up until Apocalypse Now Redux, the, those, that scene in, in its entirety was not shown. Yeah. And so yeah, I think it's very reflective. Uh, you know, maybe, I mean, is it a combination of being the, if you will, method director? Like, say, William Friedkin, who literally slaps his actors sometimes to get a performance shoots out of them. A, shoots a gun in their ear. Or was it necessary just to kind of get them to, look, you know what? Okay, you can't do it to Brando, but you can do it to Sheen, up and coming, right? And you can 
do that without making it appear that you are being this taskmaster who is putting your actors through torture. You're just trying to get this little light inside of them to glow, this acting light, to be in alignment with what he desires. He just encouraged them. If you watch that documentary, there's a there's a behind the scenes while that film is being while that scene is being shot, and you hear uh, Coppola in the background egging him on to get more out of him. And and to be fair, Martin Sheen did admit that he was out of shape. He he perhaps thought it wouldn't be there wouldn't be such a high requirement for the role. But you know what? Kudos to Coppola for keeping it within reason and still getting a very good performance out of him. You know, I really like how in the opening that cross dissolve with Martin Sheen, those like transparencies, you just get the sense of just this, what's going to happen in terms of a revelation, like this fiery revelation, all score yeah, to of it course, foreshadows you know, a the little doors, bit. Yep. Without giving too much away. And it's very appropriate. Oh, Love by it. the way, we need to mention spoilers abound. Yeah. Perhaps I'll, uh, do that beforehand, Ken. Spoilers. You know, when I listen to podcasts, I, anytime they, they put the movie in the title, I watch the movie first and I'm like, listen to the podcast. But we should include that. Indeed. Okay. You know, that shell shock moment from Chef was just so utterly convincing. And I think that plays a significant role in another undercurrent in the movie, which is like sort of this, this insanity coupled with this drug-fueled mindset. You, you just can't help but feel that that's the perpetual undercurrent and, and it's not gratuitous at all. There, there are those who were destroyed by the river and the heart of darkness and chef was one of them because he was, he was moral. He couldn't, he couldn't fathom why they had to go all the, all this way to kill one of their own guys. It was just insanity to him and it drove him crazy and placing him in new Orleans was perfect for Two, two reasons. One, you know, it was about the cooking and stuff with, and it ties in with the French and he could, the fact that he could speak French. However, you know, I, have you been to New Orleans? Have you seen all these little shops where they're selling these voodoo trinkets hmm. kind of as uh, to tourists? Well, th that was coming in New Orleans d due to um, the Caribbean influence and then the slave trade. Hmm. So the Africans brought their religion there and so the whole, it all, it ties it back to the, the novel in the African Congo quite nicely. Very nice. Very nicely said. All right, Ken, well, shall we take a little break? Let's take a break. Fruit card flicks. Well, that's a lovely wrap with part one. As I mentioned in a couple of episodes, we'll go ahead and publish part two, but in between we'd like to just kind of return back to a few things that's away from the saturation levels of COVID-19. Not that any previous episode contained any of that, but we'd like to just kind of go back to the old basics of talking about a movie, loving it, and we thought we'd do a comedy or perhaps something that's topical with the current times without being political. So thanks again, guys, for joining. Let us know if you have any comments. And Correction Corner, love to hear what mistakes we made. And I'm sure there's a, a small handful at the very least. So, till next time.